Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. You know, finding a service solution that keeps your customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at that networking event. And HubSpot Service Hub can help. So with the service solution part, at least it makes it easy. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and a chatbot to handle your frontline tickets so you could scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. Basically, he stood up during the pitch and he's like banged on the table and he's like, you guys don't know anything about advertising. There's people with like 20 years experience at Google working on this and you just looked this up on the internet like five minutes ago <laughs> and you think you can come up with a better advertising company. You will never raise a single dollar of funding. That's my friend Jack, co-founder of Vungle, describing his first investor pitch. It's not exactly how you want it to go. So, uh... How's the company doing today? Private equity firm Blackstone is set to acquire Vungle for an undisclosed sum that is hotly rumored to be 750 million US dollars in cash. Okay, great. And uh, is it rolling, guys? Okay, cool. Uh, Jack, man, I appreciate you coming on the show. I've been excited to have you on because every time I meet you, you are up to some new company, some new like experiment, some new kind of clever thing. You're, I, I would call you sort of, you're the most clever guy I know in Silicon Valley. Like I, I asked some friends the other day, I was saying, you know, if we had to nominate one of us to go on a game show and you don't even know what the game show is, but you want, <laughs> you know, you're going to need some set of skills to win it. You're going to have to, you know, maybe you have to be good socially, physically, uh, you have to be clever, solve puzzles, whatever. And, uh, you know what? I feel like you would be my pick <laughs> because you are you are very clever, and it seems like whatever system gets put in front of you, you end up cracking the code. And uh, is that fair? I mean, is that surprising to you when I say that? Um, no, I'd like to kind of think along those lines. That just like trying to whatever system is in front of me. Like if it was a, I, I do think about like game shows and stuff as well. Like how could you reverse engineer the rules to them type thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, we're going to talk about a couple of the things that you've built. So for for people who are listening, this is Jack Smith. He is an entrepreneur and a friend of mine. He has started a bunch of different things. I sort of call him the jack of all trades because he's got his hand in all different types of projects, either starting the company, advising companies, investing in companies, that sort of thing. The biggest success is a company called Vungle, which is an ad network that's doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, despite only raising, you know, by Silicon Valley terms, a small amount of money, about 25 million they raised and they're doing, you know, north of 300 million in revenue. So very impressive company, but I'm going to talk a little bit less about that, not just because it's an ad network and ad networks are not the most fun thing to talk about, but mostly because I think Jack does a lot of other interesting stuff. So Jack, when I was growing up, I thought that if you uh, if you had a million bucks, that meant you had like infinite money. You had all the money. Uh, and so that number, a million, was always you know top of mind for me. And so my goal is to find out you know from people all the you know the different crazy things that they get up to in order to make a million bucks. And um and what I want to actually know from you is you know I want to rewind the clock. So before Vungle, you're 15, 16 years old, and you start your entrepreneurial journey what was some of the early days things you tried to do to make money and, and was that even a was that even a priority of yours were you trying to make money or were you trying to do something else yeah i mean i never actually obsessed about money very much um but what i do value is um freedom and i think that money 
and I also like to try and be like successful and I feel that just like money is just kind of the barometer by which we measure success like if I was a sprinter then I'd be trying to get the best time in the 100 meters um, but because I'm kind of an entrepreneur then that's why I was focused on money mm-hmm. um, probably the first thing actually that I did uh, like as a business uh, idea that I can remember I think I was probably like eight years old or something and basically I was uh, had just been playing in the local park and then I found that there was this kind of seed um, on this tree by my house that um, you kind of open it up and it had all this like dust inside and it was um, kind of pretty itchy if it got on you uh-huh. and so basically I just picked loads in with my brother and I sold them in the playground as like itchy bombs and so I told people like put this down someone's back and then they're going to get really itchy and then um I think I sold each one for 25 cents and um yeah I got quite a lot of like people from people's older siblings and stuff were coming to buy them for me in the playground and stuff so that's probably the first entrepreneurial memory I can think of Okay. What well, did you have a name for them, or, or were you just calling them itchy bombs? Well, I, yeah, I just branded it as like itchy bombs. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So you started off with that, um, yeah. and slightly evil, but I like it. Uh, and so, where did you go from there? You're eight years old then. And just to give people like the kind of context, uh, how old are you now? I'm thirty. You're thirty. Uh, and how old do you look? Uh, probably like 13. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to imagine you at eight yeah. and I was like, it's not actually that big of a jump <laughs> from how, how I see you today. Uh, cause you got a, you're sort of the baby faced, uh, uh, assassin. So, so what did you try? What'd you try next? What were all, what were some of the other notable experiments or, uh, attempts that you made? Um, well, when I was, I think around 12 years old, all of my life I'd been getting not a massive amount, like small amount of, um, pocket money, like allowance. I think about like $2.50 a week, maybe $5 a week maximum. And then when I was like 12 or something, my parents said, okay, if you want to keep getting your allowance, then you're going to have to start doing more to help out around the house. And then so they said, all right, here's the stuff you're going to have to do. You've got to do like dishes and like tidy up and etc cetera, etc cetera. and then so I said like okay well why don't you just uh, I don't want to do that stuff so just stop giving me an allowance and I'll just <laughs> figure out how to make some money myself um so I was more valuing the freedom than um uh, the money right and then so basically at the nowadays they're, they're very popular at the time it was slightly smaller but these websites like Upwork um, which it just IPO'd a couple of months ago, uh, like Upwork or um, Guru.com. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, I just went on those sites. And so as a worker, um, I bid on projects and I bid on them even lower than like the guys in India and stuff right. because I'm like 12 years old. So any money is a lot for me. And so basically, I bid on projects that I didn't even know how to do them. And then basically, I just learned how to do them. So basically, people were paying me to learn. Um, <laughs> and so like, w- were uh, you like uh, were you like a naughty kid or what? Because I think most kids don't sort of look at their parents and say, no deal when it comes to like the allowance for chores trade. And so you were willing to do work. You just didn't want to do that work. You wanted to do other things. I just, uh, yeah, so I wasn't really naughty. I just don't like being told what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's just something somehow in my personality. I mean, I can remember as well, I think I was age three or so. 
And I had a, let's say like a sippy cup, you know, like a baby's drink their yep. milk out of these baby cups. And then so my parents were like, hey, you're getting pretty old for this now. So we need to get rid of it. And I was like, no, this is, I, this is my, I like this. <laughs> and so they were like, all right, what if we bought the cup off you? We'll offer you $5 for the cup. And then so I remember thinking just like, wow, these guys are idiots. This cup is worth way, this is not worth $5. Like I'm, I'm ripping them off. And then so I was like, I did the deal and I was like, okay, you can take the cup and then I'll take $5 for it. And so I felt like I was ripping them off. But then the next day I was like, uh, actually, I want to, I want the cup back. Can I just buy it back from you? And they're like, oh, we already threw it away. But I think like that kind of just shows that my parents kind of even from a young age just got the strategy that I didn't like being told what to do. But if it was like a business deal or something, then um, they, I, I, I was like more rational right. um, in my thinking. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, so the first acquisition offer was five bucks for the yeah. cup. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Very good. Okay, cool. So you, uh, so you started bidding on Elancer. What's that, what type of stuff yeah. were you doing then? Because you have, you're not an engineer, right? You're, yeah. Um, are you technical enough? Like, do you code at all or? Uh, yeah, so um, like I'm not an engineer. I'm just like a crappy engineer. So like I can code some stuff, but like if I was speaking to uh, like a Silicon Valley engineer, then they'd quickly find out that I'm a fraud. But I can do like designing websites. Adobe Flash was big at the time. And so I knew like basic stuff on that. Very crappy designer um, that, to like do like basic design stuff. And then... Um, kind of like 3D modeling and stuff like that. Like I'd take on any project and then I could like deliver it. It wasn't going to be great, but like I'd figure out some way to, um, you know, do a, a, a basic version of it. And what what were you charging at the time? Because you said you were going, you were trying to undercut even the sort of cheap Indian labor. So, yeah. so what, what are we talking? Um, maybe like 100 to $250 for a project, which could take like multiple weeks. Okay. You've done so many different businesses. I know, I know, I personally know of you know, five different things you've done. What's your sort of formula for thinking of these like business ideas that you think might work? Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, on a smaller level, like a hacky level, it's kind of um, exactly what you described. I was talking with someone else before and they asked like, oh, what's your favorite productivity hack? And I think like, I, I myself do this as well, but with kind of like, over glorified productivity nowadays mm -hmm. um kind of have like a lot of productivity porn yes. like these articles saying like you know the best way to be productive is um intermittent fasting and, and use this to-do list app and blah blah uh, i think actually most of the successes that i've had have actually come from when i've maybe been like procrastinating because i think you can have all the productivity tips in the world but then if you're being productive working on the wrong thing then you're kind of being a busy bee but with your head down you know not looking up to see what's around you so i think that kind of allocating time or at least just not being embarrassed about procrastinating and discovering new things on on the internet is there's so much just unlimited um, things to discover online i think that is um it's how I discovered lots of opportunities for me is um, whether it's just like reading different tech news. So like a lot of a number of breakthroughs for me have come just by one reading tech news, but then like two actually actioning on it. So if I'm reading the news and I see something interesting, just reaching out to the company 
or building a relationship with the um so so give me an example give give me an example of one that comes to mind where you you were sort of strategically being uh, you know giving yourself open space you were just browsing around uh maybe on the internet and something caught your eye what's what's an example as you uh, said in the intro that I'd like founded Vungle and then um, left around when we'd raised the Series B sort of time. And I was planning to take some time off because I was pretty burned out, to be honest. So I was thinking to take a, a fair bit of time off. Um, but actually, just one or two weeks after I left, um, I was just reading Hacker News. And then not the number one or two or whatever article that you know that those often get a lot of attention but actually on the second page of hacking news i just saw this post and it was two guys just saying that they were at idea stage and just test testing out um this idea that ended up becoming ship s-h-y-p um and so i just reached out to them and i said like hey let me know if you just want any help with your pitch deck or whatever i'm happy to be helpful and then ended up meeting them and we got on really well and it very quickly spiraled within a matter of days that they were like oh do you just want to join as a Mm co-founder um with hindsight probably would have been better as an advisor um because they had a very strong relationship together they were living together and they worked together so i was kind of a third wheel but um it was a very interesting experience nevertheless and yeah that just came from procrastinating i was just reading hacker news saw something that i an idea i thought was cool and then um found the guy's email address and just sent him an email i'm amazed you went to page two i don't know anybody that goes to yeah. page two <laughs> yeah. of hacker yeah. news <laughs> extreme um, procrastinating yeah i mean i go to uh the show tab on hacker mm-hmm. news where people are just showing a project they built i find that sure. way more interesting than um just kind of people posting news or blog articles because i want to see what sure. people are making and uh, they're just yeah. posting demos basically which is really awesome um to check out but that's kind of one of my secret secret spots to go for kind of interesting mm-hmm. stuff i think over time i've figured out you know on twitter i got these lists that are like these mm-hmm. are my gems uh hacker mm-hmm. news the show tab and i have like four or five mm-hmm. of these different mm-hmm. little you know uh um, it's almost like deal flow, but it's basically like just yeah. creativity flow where it's like, I go here and I get inspired one out of every 10 times. I find something amazing mm-hmm. and maybe nine out of 10 times is just junk, but I need mm-hmm. that versus just, um, you know, otherwise I'll just go on Instagram and then that's mm-hmm. sort of like junk food for my brain. And so I have these like little pockets on the internet that mm-hmm. like I get cool stuff from. Do you have like, do you have pockets like that? Well, I mean, um, relevant to that is that, um, Dropbox launched in the Hacker News show section, um, Drew Houston, I think when he was a solo founder, um, mm-hmm. announced his Dropbox idea in the Hacker News so- show section. You can actually still see the post online. Um, and this is about another bit to bear in mind is like, if you look on that post now, all of the comments are about how his idea is so terrible and it's definitely going to fail. People are like, well, why do I need this? I've got a USB right. stick. This is a <laughs> shit idea. Yeah. Um, this Dropbox so, thing is going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> So if you'd found that thing uh, when he posted it and been contrarian and had your own opinion instead of going on with the crowd or telling him how terrible his idea is, you could have been his co-founder. Right. <laughs> and you, I like how you just reached out of just like, hey, let me know if you guys need help. Uh, or, hey, mm-hmm. let me know if I could be helpful with X. Uh, because a lot of people, I think, want to reach out, but they don't know what to say. Uh, do you have, sure. you know, sort of, is that is that typically what you do? You just sort of say, hey, this is this looks cool. How can I help? Well, not how can I help? Because then, you know, that puts the onus on the other party to have to think for you. And then they don't know your skill sets and stuff. Right. So for me, I was like, hey, if you need help with your pitch deck, 
because I knew that they were kind of trying to raise funding and stuff. And I, so I, my email was just like a few sentences like, hey, I started this fungal thing. Need help making that first million? Be direct. Our sponsor, Monday.com, is here with a weekly dose of the Monday.com motivation. You know what you want, so ditch the fluff, state your goals straight up. Send emails, make phone calls, network. Being able to communicate your goal directly makes achieving it that much easier. Visit Monday.com backslash pod backslash million to get 10% off. Again, that's Monday.com backslash pod backslash million and see how their color-coordinated dashboards will improve communication. It'll help your team increase their workflow, manage your workload, and get you one step closer to getting that money. And had raised funding for that. And so I was saying, if you need help, with your pitch deck, then I'd ha- be happy to be helpful with that. And my intention was just to be helpful. I'd advised another other companies at that point, so I kind of thought maybe they might want me to join as advisor. But then um, that kind of resonated with them because I was saying, "This is my skill set. I can help with this." And then they were like, "Yeah, actually, we do need help with that." Right. <laughs> and so, speaking of raising money, you have kind of an insane story about how you raised your money for Vungle. Like, let's talk us through that. So you you start Vungle when you were how old? Probably twenty. Twenty. And so, uh, I'm yeah. guessing at twenty, you didn't have some like super impressive track record that you could point to and say, "Hey, trust me with your money. I, I, I've done this before." Right. So you're basically yeah. new to the to the scene. You don't have a ton of connections, and you don't have mm-hmm. a huge track record. Is that all correct? Yeah. And especially in London, um, like the ecosystem is a fair bit smaller than in Silicon Valley. And so you had this idea. And uh, how did you go about getting money for this? Um, Well, in London, we just tried a lot of different stuff. We pitched at different events and just met anyone we could. One time pitched at an event and then this guy came up afterwards and was like, oh, yeah, that was a really great pitch. We'd love to get coffee with you guys. And then he gave us his card and it's like, blah, 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 angel investor or or something. And so we went out with him for coffee once and then we went out with him a second time. And then, you know, the meeting's kind of dragging on and stuff. And we're like, so like, how much money do you generally invest in companies uh, when you're getting involved with them? Um, and he's like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I don't invest money. I, I invest my time. <laughs> uh, and we're like, what the hell? <laughs> so that was kind of our experience in London. Uh, one of the one, we got one break, we got one VC fund who uh, the two kind of associates liked what we were doing. And they, that was kind of rarity, like one, actually one of them. And then, um, they took us into a partner meeting, uh, like, or well, a meeting with one of the partners at, at like 6 p.m. or something. And then after like 10 minutes, the guy was like, okay, I gotta go now. Um, yeah, this is cool. Thanks. Bye. Because basically we were like so terrible at pitching or our idea was so terrible. <laughs> he basically walked out after like 10 minutes. And were you like devastated so, or were you fine? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, we were pretty devastated. We also had like, yeah, had a lot of weird experiences in London, to be honest. One other guy, he was just getting started investing, I guess, and he like rented two conference rooms at like a hotel or a bar or something, and he wanted to interview my co-founder and I in separate rooms, <laughs> and and we were like, dude, why why did you spend money like renting these conference rooms? You don't need to impress us. Like, what were you doing? And why are you interviewing us in separate rooms? Super weird. And then he was like, oh, I want to invest a million dollars. And then the next day, he's like, oh, actually, I'll change my mind. So all of this, like, yeah, it was um, not a very established ecosystem in London at the time. I think it's got better now. But, um, yeah, we were 
having a very tough time raising funding. And then basically the big breakthrough came again, just because I was actually procrastinating. So there was stuff that I was supposed to be doing at my company, but instead I was just slacking off and reading TechCrunch. And I saw this article and it said, there's this new incubator or accelerator in, in Silicon Valley called AngelPad. And they're giving every company that joins um, $120,000. And then at the bottom, it said like, oh, and they, they have kindly reserved one spot or kept one spot for uh, TechCrunch readers. So if you're interested, just like apply here. Um, and I said to my co-founder, like, hey, look what we're doing with no money. Imagine what we could do with $120,000. We should apply. And he's like, oh, you know, it's, it's going to be a waste of time. It's not worth it because they were saying they had like 2,000 applications for this last spot or something. And I was like, come on, we might as well just give it a try. Like there's not much to lose. And so he was like, okay, we'll just give it like three hours max. And then if not, then we'll just move on. Um, so basically just recorded a video on my phone of my co-founder and I just talking to the camera, like Tomas, senior background, you're a legend. We deserve this last spot. We're going to let you down. This is my phone number. This is my email address. Give me a call. And then basically, again, kind of from procrastinating, I'd found this kind of loophole hack on LinkedIn where I was able to create an advertisement and target it down to a specific person. Um, so LinkedIn has its kind of own ad system like Google AdWords, but they, I think it was a software engineer, like I think some software engineer had done this as a bug that I found I could set the targeting so specifically, say like job title, angel pad, job title, CEO, that there's kind of only one person who that ad would <laughs> show it to, you know? And wait, and so, so that, how did you find that? You said you just like you stumbled into this? Yeah. So I was basically just... um LinkedIn had launched a new ad system. And um, I think this is where the most opportunities are, is when it's like a nascent platform. Um, if you're trying to find hacks on Google AdWords, there's probably none left because, you know, people have like 15, 20 years experience with Google AdWords, you know, and they've got loads of engineers working on it. LinkedIn, this ad system was new. They just launched it. And so I was just testing it out. Like, oh, let me create an ad. And then it had this interesting feature where you created... Um, an ad and you set your targeting like company apple job title whatever and it told you on the right how many people your advertisement would reach so like a hundred thousand people or like 50 to 100 but then this actually at a very low level uh, so i just thought like oh what happens if i create an ad targeting one person <laughs> so the number on the side said one and i tried to submit the ad and then as you might expect it said oh your ad is not targeting enough people so you need to target a wider audience because um, that makes sense. You, yeah. Like, why would There's they like let you run an ad? Right. Yeah. I mean, why would they let you run an ad, run an ad targeting one person? Um, but then, again, just because I was just incurious, I guess, and I like just like trying stuff and breaking it, I was like, okay, well, what happens if I expand the targeting enough to make that number now say two people? So I tried again to submit an ad that targeted two people this time. Again, it was like the this audience is too small, like increase it. And so I kept on doing that one after another and then basically found out that it would let me submit an ad when I had an advertisement targeting only seven people. <laughs> I don't know why seven was the number. Again, probably someone pushed the wrong, perhaps they meant it's 7,000 people and they only pressed seven by mistake. Um, but yeah, so armed with that knowledge, I could now create an ad targeting the one person who I did want 
And then I would put in six randoms who I don't care if they saw the ad or maybe wouldn't even understand it, even if they did see it. So maybe like a <laughs> job title, like janitor at like a Chinese bank or something, you know, like <laughs> in China. So it doesn't matter if those six people saw it. And what was, so, so, so what'd you do with this ad? Uh, so I created an ad targeting all of his friends and our connections on LinkedIn. So basically, again, <laughs> had seen this TechCrunch post earlier in the day, only spent like three hours doing this, um, creating an ad targeting all his connections saying, and I also found another hack on LinkedIn ads, which was basically at the time, because it was new, all of their ads were manually reviewed, like they didn't have like automated reviews. And but the thing is that you could update the ad after it was approved. So basically, I would create like an innocent looking ad, um, just targeting whatever. And then I change it after they approved it um, <laughs> because otherwise they wouldn't have approved it. So basically, the ad said um, it had a picture of the founder of AngelPad's face. Uh, and it said, do you know Tomas? We've got an urgent message. We need to get to him. Click here. And so you click it and it took it to a one page landing page. And it's basically got the video, again, us talking to the camera, um, saying, oh, we researched you, we really want this last spot. And I put my phone number and email address, and I put a button just saying, click here to email this to Tomas. Um, and in England's different time zone to America, obviously, um, basically just went to sleep. Didn't really expect anything to come from it. Um, just gave it our best shot. And then was the next day, I kind of forgot about it, to be honest. And then the next day, I just came into the office and then I had an email, just a one-line email um, from Tomas. And um, it, it just said, like, uh, I've seen your ad. Uh, what's your phone number? Like, <laughs> um, and then so he phoned me and he's like, hey, is that Jack? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, I've seen the ad. We can chat. But first of all, take it down now. He's like, everyone's calling me about these ads. He told us later on that he'd been on a flight from New York to San Francisco, got off the plane. He had like close to 20 emails from people saying like, hey, have you seen this ad? ad? Uh, people, these young kids, they like really want to speak to you. Um <laughs> That's so amazing. So, we, so you didn't. Yeah. So, so this uh, this is you know lesson number fifty two of my first millions podcast, which is don't just put your resume on the desk. That's not enough. Sure. Um, you didn't just apply to AngelPad just like the other two thousand companies. Mm-hmm. You applied, mm-hmm. and then you spent a few hours kind of messing around trying to get this guy's attention, trying to stand out. Yeah, and uh, in a way that I feel like literally only you would have done. You target the ad, you figure out that you can target to seven people, you put his face in it and it says, you know, do you know this person? If so, click this thing. Yeah. And, uh, and you got his attention. He might have, was he annoyed or was he, uh, like, was he impressed or annoyed or a mix of both? Uh, I think a mix of both. Yeah. Um, he was like, take it down. This causing loads of trouble, but yeah, you guys are like hustling to, you really want this. And you're obviously, as you said, like going, uh, putting in work and thinking outside the box. Yeah, when I when I moved to Silicon Valley, I was in Australia at the time, so sort of like you on the outside of the bubble, and uh, I wanted to work at this place uh, called mm-hmm. Monkey Inferno, which was Michael, yeah. Michael Birch's incubator. I was like, wow, this guy's like a billionaire. He's built and sold multiple companies, and he's got this amazing place where he looks like he just bought a building, decked it out, and he's mm-hmm. it's an idea lab where you know sort of like any idea you want, you can come and work on it here. So I thought that was amazing, mm-hmm. but I looked at the job description and it said. Like you, you were hiring a product manager. I didn't even know what that was. And it said, you know, you need seven years of product management experience. I didn't even have seven minutes of product management experience, but I applied. And then I was like, okay, there's no way they're going to just like pick me out of the bunch. So then I made a custom website about, you know, why I'm the guy for the role. I wrote a letter to him 
And then even that got me a meeting and then, then they kind of blew me off and I started just doing the job even though they weren't asking me to. So I would look at all the products they built and I would send them like a PowerPoint saying, hey, here's how I think this product could be improved. And I uh, just start, started doing the job. And uh, that was the only, I only was applying to one job. <laughs> I didn't like, yeah. I didn't apply to any other jobs. I was like, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to go further mm-hmm. than anyone else. And it sounds mm-hmm. like that's pretty much the principle you were using to get yeah, into exactly. AngelPad. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd never even heard of Y Combinator. We didn't even apply to that. Like we didn't apply to anything else. And so you, did you end up getting in? Did you end up getting the, the funding from them? Yeah. So um, basically, as I said, like had seen the TechCrunch post on a Thursday, had the call with him on the Friday, the next day. And then over the course of the next week, we had um, maybe like one or two more Skype calls. Um, at the time, it was only my co-founder and I, and we had two or three interns um, in the office. And then so a week after the initial call, he said like, OK, guys, uh, I, I made my final decision. Um, oh, and by the way, like when we've done the other calls, we told every other company in AngelPad at that point were amazing software engineers. Uh, most of them were from Google. One guy had written YouTube's API. These other two were like had PhDs in video encoding. Um, and so we knew that was a weakness that we didn't fit in at all. But what we told Tomas is we said like, hey, look, you've got 11 other companies, all like heavy software engineering backgrounds, and you've got one last spot. And we were like, why don't you just choose us as just like a wild card like it could be an epic failure or it could be a massive success uh so that was our pitch is like we know we don't fit in but at least we can be a wild card so you turn a so, weakness into a, a strength basically exactly yeah um we were like your other things that we were like your other companies they're all really safe bets at one each have like one wild card and so a week after he was like all right i've made my decision who's got the final spot let's have a final skype video call and we were like oh man can't we just do a phone call like we've got our interns here do you have to reject us on video and he's like yeah we've got to do it and so we're on the call and then he's like i've made my decision i'm I'm gonna take a risk and go for a wild card like you got the last spot and we're like high-fiving around the office and he's like but if we do this then i've invested in like foreign companies before and then after the program they just like move back to their home country and our investors don't like that so if you're going to get the last spot then you have to move to america permanently and my co-founder and i we didn't even need to look at each other we've not even discussed <laughs> that at that point we were just like yeah 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 no problem that's fine and he's like okay then well um the program starts on monday so just book the first flight out here that you can um and so like two days later i think we just um on the plane to San Francisco. Amazing. And that's the company that turned into Vungle, which is the mm-hmm. yeah. sort of monster. Of, like, how many people work there now? Um, over 200, I think. Yeah. And so what was the pitch at the time? Uh, because we haven't really even been talking about the idea. I'm, you know, I'm more interested in your sort of clever hacks and your hustles <laughs> of how you get what you want. I think that is really the more interesting piece to me, at least. But like, what was the idea? Was the idea at the time we're going to be a mobile ad network or was it? The, the idea was terrible. It would never have actually worked. Um, surprised that we actually, as I said, we got in not because of the idea or our backgrounds. Um, it was just because of our hustling. The idea was terrible. It was an app store where a cross-platform app store where every app would have a video showing you how the app works so it was like an android and iphone and pc uh, app store Mm -hmm. Um, wouldn't have never actually worked but basically when we got to uh angelpad um he gave some advice which really was very compelling and he basically said all right uh, he said this to all the teams but we kind of took it on the most he said like all right i want you to call like 20 prospective customers of yours and don't pitch them your current business idea 
Um, instead, talk to them and ask what is their biggest problem in their current like day-to-day role like, in their life. And so we uh, spoke to different app developers, we went to app developers to meetups and stuff, and we asked them, what's your biggest challenge? And they told us, oh, we're app developers. We know how to build an app, but then we don't know how to do the marketing or how to get users for it. And basically how Anchorpad works is they have a demo day. Um, so it, the whole program lasts for 12 weeks. And at the end, you have a demo day where you pitch to investors, give a presentation. Um, and so basically there was actually only two weeks left. And we knew what we needed to do. We needed to come up with a new business idea. We needed to recruit a CTO because neither of us could code and um, you kind of need a CTO type person to raise funding. And we needed to raise at least some funding. Otherwise, we would have had to go back to England because we were only there on a tourist visa anyway. And so two, like, roughly two weeks before the demo day, um, what we did is we just came up with like six different business ideas related to this idea of how how can app developers get users and we we spent like half an hour each like creating a super crappy landing page for each one and basically we just spent a day trying to actually sell each idea so the first idea we were like oh we can help you get distributed onto different blogs and get them to like cover your app mm-hmm. and then we were like normally this is going to be 200 dollars, but we'll give it to you for like 20 dollars this first day met up with loads of different app developers and stuff everyone was like wow this idea is amazing um yeah i'll, I'll sign up when i get home we didn't get a single sale like people just <laughs> were telling us it's a great idea to get us to go away right <laughs> um and so we tried a different idea each day um and then the final day um we actually came up with the idea, I think, uh, I'm not sure for certain, but I think that how we came up with the idea for Bungle is that we had been trying to record a meeting that we had with one of our, like, um, uh, like with Tomas, actually, from Rangepad, where he was giving advice. And we were like, is it okay if we record this meeting? We opened the app, and then this, like, crazy, like, Verizon or Coke, like, video ad started playing really loudly that we couldn't mute. <laughs> and it was, like, really annoying. And, um, but then we thought, like, oh, wait a minute. Instead of advertising like Coke or something, why don't we have the video advertising another a different game? Um, and so we kind of again we had we hadn't written a single line of code with neither of uh, engineers, but we spoke to app developers and we were like, all right, what if you could have like a movie trailer for your app, like fifteen seconds, and then when another person when a gamer is playing a different mobile game, um, they could see a trailer for your app. And then people, we, we knew we'd hit the right idea at that point because people were basically like, oh, wow, I need this so badly. Like, I want to be your first customer. Like, they knew it hadn't launched yet, but they were like, I want to be first in line when it launches. Like, put me down for like $5,000, uh, $10,000. Like, people were throwing money at us, um, even though we hadn't got a product. And so that's when we knew we'd got the right idea. And so, I mean, is that like... Is that real? Meaning that people were, were that excited? I mean, why were they so, so like differently excited about that than the other one? And I guess like, um, how do you know, or how did they know that, yeah, this is going to get me customers? Or, or how, what was the difference, I guess? Well, the first one is not really getting any, like helping them get onto a blog or something. That's a nice to have. So one other investigator's advice that also, uh, while we were coming up with the idea, that also resonated. He said, don't create a business where you're curing your customer's itch. Like that if you don't exist, they're like, oh, well, it's just an itch. It doesn't matter. Like your 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 antidote for my itch is nice, but you know, whatever. He's like, create something where it cures your customer's cancer. 
And so for them getting onto a blog or reviews or something, that's not really users. Um, having um, uh, like a, a, an ad network with video, that would drive them actual users. And I think they got the idea more because we compared it to the, the current industry incubant. At that time, the only real option for mobile games was banner ads. And so we said, like, look, a banner uh, ad sucks. Okay. Right. Like, they don't get what your game does. It's a tiny banner. The users click on it by mistake. They didn't even mean to click it. And they don't even know what your app does. If you've got to have a 15-second video, it's like a movie trailer. Like, they're going to see what your app does. And so um, that will be a much better way to get users, you know. And um, $5,000 or so, even though it's throwing money at us, it's not that much money. They basically were willing to try anything that could potentially give them users. They weren't committing a million dollars. They were saying like, yeah, we'll, we'll try this out when it launches. We'll, we'll for sure give you like $5,000 test budget. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a massive hurdle, but what we were selling at that point was users. Um, they didn't, like right. a nice to have was blogs. So they were already advertising. It was, but it was crappy banner yeah. ads and they were thinking, ah, yeah. oh, this is like, we can't show them how fun our game is yeah. through this little banner. And what you guys brought to the market was the video ad yeah. so that they could make a little, you know, a, a juicy trailer. And they were like, okay, yeah. I believe more people will come to us than we're currently getting if we do the video. Yeah. The other bit uh, to bear in mind as well is Tomas, uh, the angel pad guy, actually had worked at Google um, for many years. And so we were coming up with all these different ideas. And so we met him during AngelPad. And again, we were super layman. And so just I remember drawing on the whiteboard like, I I've done some brief reading online. I think this is how mobile advertising works. <laughs> like it's like you have an advertising. Advertiser. Basically, he he was also this was like a practice investor pitch. So I think he was kind of in the acting mode a bit. We yeah. made him feel guilty about it afterwards. But basically, there was another investor sitting there as well. Basically, he stood up during the pitch and he's like banged on the table and he's like, "You guys don't know anything about advertising. There's people with like 20 years experience at Google working on this, and you just looked this up on the internet like five minutes ago, <laughs> and you think you can come up with a better advertising company." You will never raise a single dollar of funding. Um, and so we kept reminding him about that. Um, but the reason that it worked is it was actually an advantage that we didn't know anything at all about advertising. Because what it meant is that we looked at things just through the lens of the customer needs. Um, so at the time, the industry standard for mobile advertising was it was charged on a CPM basis, cost per mil. And that means cost per thousand people that view an advertisement whether that's a banner or a video so it was like let's say like two dollars per thousand people that see your ad and we were thinking we just thought about this through the lens of instead of thinking like oh this is just how everyone in the industry does it this is the rule so i guess we should follow it we thought about from the needs of our customer the app developer and we just thought like wait a minute they don't care how many people see the video they just want users and so it was a risk like uh, could have totally not worked. But we said, all right, instead of charging CPM, we'll just charge you. You just pay us for each user that we get you. Mm -hmm. So just pay us like $2 for every user we get you. It doesn't matter if we get you a user after they see your video once or like 100,000 times. Um, we, we're just going to charge you based on how many users we get you. Um, and then that, again, was a massive differentiator for us. And it became because we were naive. And, um, you know, if we had more experience, we could have just said, no, this, you know, this is the right. rules, I guess. Yeah, I love Everyone that. Everyone does it this way. So 
because it's, it's so simple and it's um, it seems obvious in hindsight, mm-hmm. but for sure, I mean, that's the way the industry worked. That's the acronym. Everybody mm-hmm. knows CPM. And mm-hmm. so if you had come at it f- from the advertising background, you would have taken that for granted and just continued mm-hmm. on as is. And so w- how did you, uh, you left the company at a certain point. Uh, was that yeah. just, you know, was it, you know, founder tension? Was it, you were tired of it? Uh, you vested all your stock. What was the reason you left? Um, lots of different reasons. I think like uh, as humans, we like to have a very simple and um, clean explanation or story to lots of stuff, right? But um, like there's lots of dynamics going on in a company. Um, I think that for me, it was like various things. Um, one is that after putting in all of this effort, getting to AngelPad and then during the program, like basically sleeping in the office and going all in and not having any weekends or holiday. Um, I was very burned out at the end. Um, and I think not in a, I was very unhealthy and not in a good frame of mind really, because I'd just gone all in on my company. And then the important thing as a company scales and you get more and more people is um, the founders also need to scale as well. So when there's two of you, you need to do everything. You need to be the company janitor, the company accountant, the company office manager, everything. So throughout the time of the company, I was doing everything, like marketing, product, all this. And then as the company scales, you kind of need to fire yourself from those responsibilities and uh, hire people to take them over from you. And you become very focused on what you're good at. The, the conventional wisdom that's given a lot by investors and, and stuff like that. They give out, they say the certain rules, like Silicon Valley rules. They say like, oh, you should never invest in like family teams. You should never invest in husband and wife teams. You should never have one founder be CEO and one be president because then there's not clear line of control. So people get confused. And so I kind of, um, didn't really take my own advice about breaking the rules. I kind of just accepted these Silicon Valley norms that everyone was telling me. It was only after I left the company um, that when I researched at the time, there was only about 20 unicorns. Um, so companies worth over a billion. Now there's loads. When I looked at them, pretty much every single one broke one of those rules. Um, Eventbrite it was a husband and wife team. Um, Stripe, they are brothers. Um, Lyft, one of the co-founders is CEO, the other one is president. So kind of there is no rules in Silicon Valley, but at the time I kind of went along with what different investors and stuff were telling me. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. I appreciate the sort of the nuance. And so, so when you left, you know, at one point you, um, you know, the company's doing really well, but you personally sold a little bit of the stock. Explain to people who have never been in that position where, you have this paper net worth that's you know you it's worth something but the company's not liquid yet and so yeah. how did you think about that and how did you how did you actually do that and t- t- walk us through how that works how do you do how do you sell secondary stock yeah so after, uh, i mean investors often don't want when you're still working at a company they probably don't want you selling stock that much um it's become a bit more normal but they don't want you to do it that much because they want you to be incentivized and like hungry to get an exit so that they can make money as well. You know, if you sold a load of your stock, then you're probably just going to be more like, oh, just not in any rush to sell, but they, they want you to be hungry. But because I'd left, then, um, the company was a bit more amenable to it. And so, um, you know, I could do with having a bit of cash to survive on a day to day basis. So my co-founder who was still there just said like, oh, hey, well, there's these other investors who want to invest in the company, but we don't really want to raise investment right now would you be interested in selling a small amount of your stock to them? 
And then, so I said, like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good arrangement. And then the company was all on board with it because um, it was only a small amount and there wasn't going to be more dilution for everybody. And so basically just chatted with these guys and it was fairly simple that I just sold a um, small amount that we kind of just went back and forwards, agreed a rough valuation and then, um, like, uh, just sold a small amount at a kind of reasonable valuation for both parties. Gotcha. And so how did you decide, you know, how much you wanted to sell? Uh, did you want to do investing and, uh, you know, create other businesses or, or invest in real estate or something like that? Like, how did you, what, no. what did you do? How did you think about the money there? Uh, I was just thinking, um, I didn't, I didn't want to take money to do investing because I also was confident that the company valuation was going to keep going up. So I kind of just thought like, what's the minimum amount that I'm going to feel comfortable the next few years, at least just not have to worry about how I'm going to pay my rent and stuff and um, not have to be forced to try and get a salary somewhere. So I kind of just thought like, let's say that the average Silicon Valley salary is like, I don't know, eighty, hundred thousand dollars or something. I just thought like, all right, what's a few years um of that kind of salary range um that would give me some money to live, but I'm not selling I'm I'm still keeping, you know, like ninety-five plus percent of my stock. Gotcha. Okay. And you you you, you wanted to continue to ride that upside, so you found the yeah. balance that worked for you. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Uh, cool. And the last question I have for you um, is, again, I think you are one of the most clever and sort of outside the box thinkers. And it's funny, funny having you on a podcast. And in general, you do a great job of meeting a lot of people. I feel like you meet a lot of entrepreneurs, either through the internet or in person. Uh, but you're actually kind of a introverted guy. You're not the sort yeah. of loudest guy in the room. Um, and so I was, I, you know, I wanted to have you on so that you could tell your story. But um, also, I think a lot of people can learn from you. The one thing I wanted to know uh, is if you were 20 years old again today and you take out Vungle and, you know, you don't have that stock that's going to be worth all this money and you were trying to make it again, you were trying to do something new. What would you, wh where would you gravitate towards, you know, if it's a specific project, that's great. But even if it's just a certain space that you're interested in, what would you do if you were 20 years old again today? Uh, I would be, again, like reading tech news like TechCrunch or Hacker News or things like this and then seeing what new platforms are launching. So let's say like you had your Blab platform, right? Yep. Um, even after Vungle, one bit I did is I saw Product Hunt. It launched, had, I think, under 200 users or something. And I was like, oh, this just seems pretty interesting. And then I just started using it every single day. I just would post a new product to it every single day. Um, so, you know, a few minutes of work each day. And then um, quickly, um, I just became the number one user. Uh, on the site and they had like a ranking board and then um product hunt just got more and more popular and then nowadays it's like a very established thing but um i had just started very early and you're only allowed to post one product per day so kind of i had a head start that nobody else could catch me up with as long as i consistently posted each day um and so I just posted each day and then I made it a bit more scalable. Again, I'm a crappy software engineer. If I was doing this again, I would just hire someone off Upwork, pro could probably get it done for like $10 or something. I basically um, did this myself, but I could have hired someone for $10. I created um, just a script to um, automatically schedule um, a post to Product Hunt each day at exactly midnight. 
and that's when the leaderboard resets. And then basically, I just had a massive list of products, and so I didn't have to do any work. It would just post to product ten each day, and I'm, I was the number one user, and so nobody else could catch me. And then because there's a leaderboard, I'm kind of getting free advertising, if you like, on the homepage. And then、um, a number of people kind of found me on there and were reaching out.、Um, Sequoia is pretty much like one of the best-known VC funds in Silicon Valley.、Uh, one of the partners from Sequoia just reached out to me and asked, like, "Hey, can we get lunch?"、Um, just because I, I think he just found it interesting. Like, why is this guy so prominent on there?、Um, and I did the same thing with. So, Product Hunt has become popular. I also did it with some other platforms. One was called Whale. It was like a question and answer site. That one ended up dying.、Um, But you know, if you place enough bets in different places, then one of them might take off. And because you're one of the early users, you know, the early users of YouTube nowadays are like hundreds of millionaires, right?、Um, so that's probably what I do is like、uh, that doesn't cost any money at all to become a power user on a platform that is new, and so you have a good opportunity of becoming a number one user. And then when you've got that, you can leverage that. You get connections. Because I was on Product Hunt, many startups reach out to me all the time, like pitching me, asking, "Can you help me go onto Product Hunt?" And then I could have like asked them or transitioned that to be an advisor that, at one of the companies, or if they seemed interesting, try and be a co-founder.、Um, the same as having a ship that I described, so something like that.、Mm. Jack, this is why you would win the game show.、Uh, you 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 are quick to sort of find the exploits, <laughs> the platforms that are fast, you know, new and fast, fast growing, and you you jump on. I like that very good strategy, and it reminds me of a a framework that I have, which is you don't always have to.、Um, so some people look for windows, and some people look for doors. This is what I like to say. A window is something where you you can see through it. You know exactly what's on the other side, and you can decide is this worth my time or not. And it's good to look through windows, right? You want to look at opportunities and say, "Is this going to be worth it or not?" But sometimes you got to open doors, and you don't know what's behind the door. But as long as you're reasonably confident that this door leads to four more doors, it's worth going through. And so I think there's a lot of people out there who look for windows, and anytime they see a door, they get a little bit scared. They don't want to open it, and it's、yeah. advantageous to be a door opener、uh, and just keep opening one door that opens four more. And it sounds like you know what you did with Product Hunt is exactly that. Um, yeah, exactly. Hey, so listen, man, we're gonna we're gonna hop off, but I wanted to give you a chance、okay. to give people a way to、uh, follow you, to contact you, to check out some new stuff you're working on.、Uh, this is your opportunity to kind of shout out. How should the people who are listening to this? How should they,、uh, you know, get more Jack Smith in their life, which we all want. Yeah,、um, my website is just jacksmith.eu. I've got a blog up. I haven't posted it in a while, but、um, maybe if more people. Reach out to me via that, then I can start posting more, I guess.、Um, but that's probably the best way to find me, and then it links off to my Twitter and stuff like that from there. Awesome, great, Jack. Man, it's good talking to you, and I、uh, hope I'll see you soon when you're back from New York、yeah. after the summer. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, and、um, best of luck. I'm looking forward to see who else comes on the podcast next.